university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. My name is Dr. Christopher Bell. This is the Deconstruction Workers. And today I am speaking with an old friend of mine from the borough of Manhattan Community College. This is Dr. Tracy Beeler. Tracy is in the English department, yes? Yes. At the borough of Manhattan Community College. Tracy is also one of the coordinators of the Page 23 Literary Conference, which is held every year at Denver Comic-Con. And she and I have been colleagues for quite some time. She is also a part of the leadership team of Harry Potter Studies within the Southwest Popular American Culture Association. And we we just go way back. So Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited. We are today talking about a very interesting, I think, phenomenon within popular culture. And that is this fascination we have, particularly in the United States, but I think kind of around the world at this point, with true crime stories. Why are we so interested in reading and listening and watching about other people getting murdered? I think it's so fascinating to me. And so Tracy has a lot of experience in true crime, as do I, mostly as a listener and a fan. Uh, but I wanted to sort of open the floor and I will turn it over to you and we'll sort of kick it around. Cool. Yeah, I guess the first thing um, I think of when I think about true crime being part of pop culture in this particular cultural moment is that true crime's really old. You know, you can probably trace it back to 16th century pamphlets, you know, that looked at particular trials, particular punishments. It seems like people have always been interested, maybe morbidly so, in learning about crime and thinking about the criminal mind. And I think what's really cool that's happening now now is that the genre itself is sort of expanding to look more at perhaps the institutional causes of particular crimes, why particular crimes happen, are supported, and also kind of the emotional after effects of crime on communities, on individuals. It seems like it's sort of getting bigger from just looking voyeuristically one particular act of violence to seeing how that fits into a larger socio-political picture. And I think that's really interesting. When I think of true crime, particularly in the United States, I think the culminating moment that really launches true crime in the United States is Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which mm -hmm. is 1965. It's a novel. It's really popular. It's really uh, profitable. And I don't really remember there being a more realistic depiction of the intent to murder 
in American popular culture before that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, In Cold Blood, I think definitely institutionalized the genre as serious literature. I mean, Truman Capote was already an established writer when In Cold Blood came out, and he completely subsumed himself in this case for years. And I think the way In Cold Blood is written, the influence of that lingers to today. And so the idea that a true crime text needs to be very detail-oriented, it needs to be big, like it needs to be long. And also Truman Capote largely absented himself from the narrative, even though he was very emotionally implicated in the story itself, which if you've seen the movie Capote, it does a good job of looking at the emotional toll writing this book took on Truman Capote. You know, he never wrote another book after it, sort of drank himself to death. But the book itself, Truman Capote is sort of this absent figure. And Similarly, in 1979, you get the Executioner song by Norman Mailer that takes a similar sort of pose, right? Like this is going to be the authoritative account of this crime. And I think what's happening now is you get more and more creators that are getting away from that, getting away from the idea that there is one truth to tell about a crime, that there are many narratives that all sort of circulate around Um, individual or discrete acts of violence. Although I will say there is still that through line, particularly through, when does Helter Skelter come out? 69. 69, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got that about about the Manson family. Mm -hmm. But then in more recent days, you've also got the book about the Golden State Killer. Yes. Michelle McNamara's book. Yes, yes. And I think Michelle McNamara's book is really interesting because she's obviously influenced by uh, this this compulsion to track down every detail. But she's also very much a part of the book. Like she includes her own kind of true crime origin story in the book itself, like why she is interested in crime. And so you have the authorial eye is a part of the story. I would say something like Making a Murderer is actually really close to something like The Executioner's Song or In Cold Blood, where the creators, they're just not there. You know, their purpose is clear, but their personalities, their emotions aren't part of the story the way Michelle McNamara's is in I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Uh, Have you seen The Staircase? Oh, yes. (laughs) It also sort of rides that line Mm -hmm. where, although I think the creators are also in that a little more mm-hmm. in the, in the narrative itself a little bit more than mm-hmm. even something like making a murderer. Yeah. Also the jinx, you have the producer, Robert Jarecki is in it. You know, you see his reactions to certain things. You see his presence as part of the story, But also the jinx is is telling a particular truth, right? I don't want to spoil it, but there is a definite point of view. There's a different, a definite argument that these crimes happened in a certain way. And I'm really interested in the kind of true crime narratives that maybe aren't as interested in telling that sort of authoritative account, but are more interested in sort of the, the threads that come out from a particular crime and how that affects a community and an individual emotionally or psychologically. I certainly think that there are different points of entry for true crime. 
that are interesting to me. For example, I really have gotten into this podcast. I'm going to free shout out here, but this (laughs) podcast called Court Junkie, which is less about the crimes themselves and more about the defenses that people accused of crimes have been putting up in court. And originally I didn't know, or I don't even know that Jillian, the, the host, knew that it would all be murder, but it's all murder. It's all, mm-hmm. it's all murder all the time. <laughs> and the defenses that murderers put up and then turning it back on the listener and saying, you've heard as much evidence as the jurors, really. Mm-hmm. What do you think? And it becomes less of a focus on the crime and more of a puzzle solving adventure. (laughs) Which is interesting, right? I mean, I think that there are a lot of true crime properties that invite that kind of participation. Certainly Serial has a massive Reddit presence where people think through and even do their own investigating on the crime in the first season, the Haven Lee murder. Right. And it sort of toes that line between like, are we playing? Is it just fun and entertaining for us to solve a puzzle when there are literal dead bodies implicated in this? I mean, I think that that's something that me as a huge fan of true crime really tries to wrestle with. What are the responsibilities of a quote unquote fan of murder stories? Is there a way to be a responsible fan? Is there a way to be an ethical fan? Is there a way to be an unethical or irresponsible fan or creator of these narratives? And I think that's a big question that hasn't, you know, we haven't had time to fully address because putting these things on the internet and inviting and encouraging audience participation makes it a different sort of animal than reading a book, you know, when you might talk about it with your friends. But this, these new narratives and platforms that invite and encourage casual armchair detectives to become involved with these cases is a really new frontier in the genre, I think. So there's two things there that I kind of want to unpack. The first is, is it possible to be an unethical creator? And I think Serial is the perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. Because the first season, I think works really, really well and is very interesting and sort of invites the listener to do some, if not sleuthing, then certainly trying to connect the dots for themselves. Mm -hmm. The second season, I admittedly did not listen to. It did not interest me at all. S-Town is incredibly unethical to me. Uh, mm-hmm. To the point where I finished it, but I think I finished it mostly out of spite. And <laughs> a good hate listen. Yes, because I'm the kind of person who can't just not watch a thing. If I started, I have to finish it. And so, mm-hmm. uh, but I often am no longer enjoying that thing, or in some cases, like S Town, I'm actively hating it. <laughs> but I found it so distasteful by the end of it. I really felt like it became less about this life and trying to figure out what happened to it mm-hmm. and more about the broadcaster himself 
Mm-hmm. at the expense of this person who has died. Yeah, I I don't think I hated S-Town quite as much as you did, but I do think S-Town and Serial present different problems for precisely the reason you say, is because the creator's positioning is very different. So Sarah Koenig and Serial foregrounds her ignorance a lot. She says, I don't know, a lot. in the series and she's been called out for you know her casual racism the family of Heyman Lee vocally did want to be a part of this podcast and talks about how putting their pain back into on the airwaves has been very difficult for them but I feel like those sorts of mistakes that were then incorporated into the show itself so she would address what people were saying, the criticisms people had about her style and about the way she was telling the story in the story itself, which I think is one of the best ways to handle it. But Brian Reed in S-Town comes at it almost like he's writing a novel. And that's a problem because novels don't tend to be messy and have false starts and incorporate or change gear in the middle because things have been discovered. And I think that that attitude that he takes through telling the story of John B. McElmore's life and death becomes him smoothing over a lot of jagged edges and making a lot of assumptions that I agree with you, I think end up diminishing the complexity of a person in a way that's sort of disturbing and at worst and really careless, I would say at that. Careless. Careless is exactly the word I would use. By the end of the series, he is careless with the story of a person who has died. And a person who had a life and had experiences that Brian Reed doesn't understand because he is not a part of that community. Right. And his attempts to explain the the emotional truth of John B. really ring falls in an uncomfortable way. Particularly his queerness is what I'm thinking of. Yes. Yeah, like Brian Reed makes it all about he was a lonely man. And it's like, well, just because he doesn't experience relationships in the same way that you do in a heteronormative way, I mean, maybe, but to make that the solution to the puzzle, I guess maybe that's part of the problem is Brian Reed tries to solve it with a very pat, kind of naive answer. He was lonely. He did not find love. And that can be fine in a novel or a short story for your character. But this person, all people are bigger than that. And the S-Town didn't give the space. It didn't allow for the space for different versions or stories or ideas to be told. I think there's another way that you can sort of be careless with these stories as well, which also skirts an ethical line, which is why I very quickly after starting, stopped listening to My Favorite Murder. Mm, okay. Which also I really feel like takes odd liberties with the narratives of people who have suffered horrific acts of violence. And it becomes much too flippant and frivolous for me. I think that is a completely valid critique. I happen to be a huge fan of my favorite murder. And, you know, I think part of it, 
it builds itself as a comedy podcast, right? <laughs> like that. Right. And I, I think it's sort of, I mean, these are sort of different ways to think about the problem. But Joss Whedon famously said, like, if you can't get with the title Buffy the Vampire Slayer, then don't watch the show. You know, it's, it's right. together two disparate things. And my favorite murder is a comedy podcast about murder. And not getting past that, I think, is a positive, you know, I mean, I think that that is a legitimate and perhaps even more responsible take. What I like about My Favorite Murder is that it foregrounds storytelling and women telling stories to each other. And that, to me, reflects on a lot of my experiences I've just had in my life, meeting someone at a party, discovering someone's also a true crime fan, and telling these abbreviated, quite possibly flippant stories of, oh my God, did you hear about this? Oh my God, did you hear about that? And I think what that requires is a lot of trust in the storyteller that their their aim is true, right? Like their ethos is good, that it's not coming from a place of thinking murder is flippant, but rather coming from a place of wanting to share this story with someone who is open to hearing it. And there's been a lot of talk, uh, especially recently, about the relationship between women in particular and true crime fandom yes. and what to make of that. Which I definitely would like to get to because I do find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, 70, I think 70 or 71% of all serial killer victims mm-hmm. are women. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something inherent in that that oddly draws women to these true crime stories, um, particularly the true crime stories about serial killers. Yes. And I think I think that's absolutely true. I mean, there are a couple of different theories being bandied about as to why women in particular are drawn to true crime narratives about female victims. One explanation is sort of a psychological approach is that it's an attempt to master something that's terrifying, that you see someone who looks like yourself, who is also operating in a misogynistic world that tends to victimize women. And so you tell this story as a way to master it, as a way to understand why it happened, to protect yourself and the people you care about. Megan Abbott, actually, who's a fantastic crime novelist, wrote an interesting article recently about why women love true crime books. And she thinks it has something to do with kind of the concurrent burgeoning of the Me Too movement and that true crime becomes this place where women can go to talk about the stuff they're not supposed to talk about, like domestic abuse and sexual assault and conflict and things that are unfeminine or impolite to talk about, a safe place where women can do that with each other. And that, I think, was a large part of the appeal of My Favorite Murder is two women talking about these things you're not supposed to be interested in that you're not supposed to talk about. But it's gotten, I think, way too big for them. And that sort of question of ethical fandom and how to do this respectfully and also to be aware of yourself and your limitations as a storyteller are really coming to the fore because the hosts of My Favorite Murder are two white women. And what has been lobbied at them more so than you're being funny about murder 
is that you really have blinders when it comes to racial insensitivity in telling hmm. stories. And that's a problem, I think, that is pretty endemic to true crime narratives, actually, with a few notable exceptions. And so another reason why I like the, the vocalness and the size of the My Favorite Murder fandom is that it becomes a place where that sort of shortcoming can be called out in a way that opens my eyes as a white woman and a fan of true crime. I think your analysis is so fascinating to me because none of those are the reasons why I listen to true crime. Mm. And I think that's entirely gendered. And I think it's entirely gendered in a way that even as someone who does gender studies for a living, I've never really thought about all that hard Mm. because for me, And for lots of other, as I find, as I talk to other men who are into true crime stories, I think it's this combination of, number one, sort of the same reason why you ride a roller coaster. (laughs) We like to be slightly afraid. Mm -hmm. Being slightly afraid is kind of fun. It's why you go to a horror movie and you scream and then you immediately laugh. It's manageable risk, yeah. Yes, there's this fine line between fear and pleasure, and that line is written by the fact that you know you're safe. Mm -hmm. So you can scream at the murderer on the the screen because you know that murderer isn't actually in your house. Mm -hmm. And you can scream on the roller coaster when you're falling because you at least (laughs) feel as though (laughs) you're going to be caught at the bottom of the hill. Right, that is You're not actually going to die at right. least if the you know if the roller coaster is working correctly. Right. So so there's that piece of it. There's the again going backwards a little bit. There's the solving puzzles piece of it which mm-hmm. sort of appeals to I don't necessarily think of puzzle solving as necessarily a quote-unquote masculine quality, but it is the kind of Mm -hmm. space that men get pushed into quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And the thing that nobody likes to talk about at parties, nobody would want to talk about in public, but this feeling that a lot of men have, and that even I have had on occasion, that you are one bad decision away from destroying your life lots of times. Mm -hmm. There are lots of instances where because of the way men are socialized in this culture, Mm-hmm. You can get to a point where you can identify a moment where you need to walk away or else your whole life is about to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think hearing people who make the wrong side of that decision, mm-hmm. hearing about that, and this is less of the serial killer kinds of things, but more of I murdered my wife or I I followed this guy home and stabbed him in his house or whatever. Right. I think those are the kinds of stories that resonate differently along gender lines. And I'm probably painting some broad brushes here, but No, I mean that's what we do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. You gotta you gotta brush broadly before you put in the detail. Right. And I think it's so interesting what you're saying about the thought experiments that you as a male true crime fan have it's as the murderer. And I think for a lot of women, it's the same sort of thought experiment, except we're the victims, right? It's right. Like, You think back on all those times that maybe you walked home alone when that probably wasn't such a good idea or, you know, you you went out with someone alone 
even though that wasn't such a good idea. And, you know, it's only by the grace of God that nothing bad happened to you, but it could have. And I, to go back to your roller coaster example or analogy, I think what's really interesting is that a lot of women and a lot of the true crime creators who are women who I'm really interested in know that the roller coaster is broken, know that you can do absolutely the right, quote unquote, right thing and still get hurt and still be a victim. And so then it doesn't become like an individual sick pathology or an individual bad decision or an unlucky woman. It becomes an institutional It becomes topic. systemic. Yes, yes. That there are reasons that women are victimized at a larger rate than men. Yes. It's all on the spectrum of toxic masculinity. Two things immediately came to mind. Number one, which is, uh, that's not how I walk around in my life. Mm-hmm. My wife and I have this conversation all the time. If I'm driving down the road and I see, perfect example, we were driving one day and I saw this guy trying to push his truck out of the middle of the road mm-hmm. and I pulled over mm-hmm. and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm going to help that guy. And I got out and I walked up and I said, hey, do you need some help? And he said, yeah. And I pushed his truck with him to the side of the road and then I got back in my car and I drove away mm-hmm. and she was just staring at me and I was like, what? And she said, it would never occur to me to get out of the car and go help someone who is pushing a car because I might get pushed into it. Mm -hmm. That thought never crossed my mind, not even a little bit. And that's, that's such a weird space to think about having to live in this idea that you are, could do everything right and still be in constant danger. I think that's a thing that, men in this society in general have no access to. Even as a man of color in the society, where I am often afraid, typically of white men, Mm -hmm. I cannot fathom having to live my whole life as a white person and still having to be afraid of white men. Because, and I say that because statistics will show most stranger murder is actually committed by white men. Mm-hmm. So particularly murder of women. Mm-hmm. And then most women are murdered by intimate partners yes. or family. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, it becomes sort of what is a safe space. And I think that listening to a lot of narratives about this sort of violence do help us understand what it's like to move around in the world in different bodies, in bodies that look different than our own, because so much of that is invisible. Like you said, I mean, my partner doesn't know what it's like to go into a subway car and immediately realize you're the only woman there. You know, that's sort of a calculus that I and, and my friends who I've talked to just automatically do to protect ourselves. And I mean, I do think that the experiences of young men of color and women are very different, but some of the language about what it's like to live in a body that is marked for violence in terms of the police, I think you see some crossover. And I do think that stories about police violence should count as true crime. I mean, that's sort of one thing that's- Well, they certainly do to me. Yeah, up in the air, it's like (laughs) what quote unquote counts as true crime. And I think that even conceptualizing the death of a young black man at the hands of police as a crime is a political act. 
and it's an important and necessary and urgent political act. And that's something true crime can do in the world, you know, other than just be sort of entertaining. It can say, no, we need to reconceptualize these acts of violence as state sanctioned crimes. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And, you know, there's a lot of baggage that even the word true crime has. You know, it's like salacious. It's, you know, melodramatic. It's unsolved mysteries, which I also think is gendered. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's a thing women like. The other thing is journalism or memoir. I don't know how useful labels are at the end of the day, but... Um, I do think that what more contemporary true crime writers are playing with that idea of the line between journalism and memoir and true crime and kind of destigmatizing the name true crime. I mean, uh, the Edgar Award is given to fact crime. They won't even call it true crime. It's like nobody calls it fact crime. Fact crime as opposed to what? To true crime. Like, they don't want to call it true crime because I think the genre is so stigmatized. Like, we're giving a serious award to the best fact crime. And it's absolutely a true crime book. But just kind of staying away from that moniker has... I think that's sort of becoming broken down because of shows like Serial and the Netflix original series, The Keepers. I don't know if you watch that one, but it was a brilliant docu-series about these two women in their 60s whose high school teacher, who was a nun, they went to a Catholic school, was murdered. And they decide to go back and try and figure out what happened to her. And it's a really powerful story about the Catholic Church and the way abuses are covered up and erased and how quite possibly this young nun found out something she didn't need to know and was murdered by the elders of the church. And so, you know, it's another kind of way that these true crime stories can be really, I think, powerful political interventions just by looking at one kind of discrete act of violence, but seeing how that opens up into this whole larger world that might have in some way produced this particular victim and this particular crime. So earlier I had said two things had occurred to me. The second thing that had occurred to me was also gendered, which is going back to an earlier point I made about how, you know, a lot of men really can get into this space of where you're only one bad decision away from ruining the rest of your life and putting yourself in the place of that murderer. Mm -hmm. I think then it becomes by extension, but I didn't make that choice Mm -hmm. and I haven't killed anybody. Mm Mm-hmm. And you did. Mm -hmm. So what the hell is wrong with you? And now we have this intense desire for justice. Yes. And that's where I listen to a lot of the show True Crime Garage. Mm -hmm. And the two guys from True Crime Garage are crusaders. Mm -hmm. That's the word that I would use to describe them as as the hosts of this show. Mm -hmm. They are crusaders. They want justice done to these people who have committed these heinous crimes. Right. And I think that's another reason why men, particularly, get into true crime in the ways in which that they do. Mm-hmm. It's less about justice. It's, it's in some ways even less about justice for the victim mm-hmm. and more about justice to the perpetrator. Yeah, I mean, that's that's so satisfying, right? I mean, that's sort of the formula of your classic mystery is that 
something chaotic has happened and it's introduced chaos into the system. And so if the person who introduced that chaos is punished, order is restored. And, you know, we go back and it's, and it's very satisfying. I mean, as a species that tells stories and gets so much meaning from stories, that is a very satisfying arc to follow. And so the true crime narratives that interrupt that, that don't let you find that satisfaction, that idea that order can be restored in a broken system, I think are, are doing some really interesting work, just also in terms of narrative structure, in terms of what we expect when we pick up a true crime narrative. And then the answer is a shrug. And even if you do find out who did it, and even if that person, let's say, is punished with capital punishment, right? That person is gone. That person is dead. Has justice been done? What does justice look like? How can that official institutional process intersect with the emotional after effects of being touched by that kind of violence? Some of the best true crime narratives just sever that relationship, you know, say that this institutional process might happen, but that doesn't really translate for friends and family of the victim, if we're talking about murder, or the victim, him or herself, if we're talking about assault. Does it fix it? Can it be fixed? What does that look like? Which I think is why the particular genre of true crime where we don't know who the murderer is where they're still quote unquote out there somewhere Mm -hmm. is so fascinating to me because it isn't a closed ended circuit. Mm -hmm. It it is very open-ended with a live wire at the end of it. And part of it is trying to figure out, well, who did this thing? But a lot of times there's not even clues towards who the perpetrator was and it becomes. So then what? I know. I mean, it's so it's like, then where do you drop your anchor? And I think two interesting examples of that is All Begun in the Dark, which when Michelle McNamara died, she did. It, it had not been solved. The Golden State Killer had not been identified. And so it seems like she then puts her faith in the search and she puts her faith in and her strength in and she puts herself back together by looking for more and more clues versus something like Zodiac, the Fincher film. Um, right. Yeah. Which also, you know, unsolved. And I think Zodiac puts its faith in procedure. I mean, the heroes of Zodiac are reporters and cops who follow procedures. And that's where the movie finds its coherence. It cycles around the, the figure of the killer But in a world where that kind of certainty is elusive, what do you have? And I think for different true crime writers, that answer is different things. Sometimes it's storytelling. Sometimes it's community. Sometimes it's political activism. But I think almost every true crime story becomes a reckoning with justice. And what do you do when there is no justice? I think part of it is what do you do when there is no justice? But then part of it is also the idea that there might still be justice. Mm -hmm. This is especially true, again, like I said, in those unsolved mystery cases where I think people watch or read or listen to them with the idea that they are prepping themselves for the moment where the killer's going to be caught. (laughs) 
even if it happened 35 years ago and it's the coldest of cold cases. Well, look at Jean Benet, right? I mean... Jean Benet is the perfect example. Yeah. <laughs> the number of times where I have sat down, watched one of these shows, and then been certain I know who killed Jean Benet Ramsey, right? Mm-hmm. Until the next show comes on. Right. And you, you realize... And I have connection to that case in particular because it happened where I grew up. Mm-hmm. So... You know, for those of us who lived in the greater Boulder area, very North Denver slash Boulder area, Mm -hmm. that case dominated the entire consciousness of our existence for years and years because it was happening right there. Right. And so this feeling that one of us was going to solve the murder that happened in our community it's so seductive. <laughs> it's a di- and it's a different headspace to be in about this story than when I read about a thing that happened 30 years ago in Ohio. It's interesting to me, but it's not the same thing. Right. I mean, I think when you know the landscape when the pictures aren't just pictures, they're pictures of your town where you could walk to. And also this kind of idea like, well, is this, you know, the, anybody could be the killer, right? Like you, you walk around, it could be anybody, you know? Right. And I think that that sort of hyper vigilance and hyper awareness is something, you know, to circle back to what we were talking about that women feel or people, you know, also queer identities, gender nonconforming people, anybody whose body is at risk for whatever reason, you know, sort of adapt as a survival technique and true crime crystallizes that and and makes it real in a way that I think feels like justification you know it feels like you're not crazy this is a world in which violence sporadically and spectacularly can happen and how do you live in that world I watched this I hesitate to call it documentary I don't even know what to call these anymore docu-series maybe the fact that Investigation Discovery exists as a channel. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably not healthy for me as a viewer. Um, (laughs) And probably doesn't say a whole lot about our civilization in general. Yeah, nothing good. But I I watch it pretty intensely. And (laughs) I was watching one of the, the series on that channel where it's just this person went to a party or went to a bar or was walking down the street and had an encounter with someone and they ended up murdered for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And the investigation discovery shows hours and hours and hours of this kind of thing happening. And one I was watching, this woman goes to a bar, has a conversation with a person who lives in her building, apparently, it turns out, mm-hmm. has a couple of drinks, that person leaves... She finishes her drink. She goes out to the parking lot. There's some guys out there. She offers to give them a ride home. They're walking to her car, and then they just literally randomly murder her. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize there are cameras on the light posts and in the parking lot and whatever. And so they're fairly quickly caught. Mm -hmm. But I wonder the effect that watching those shows over and over and over again has on sort of our collective psyche and how we therefore treat strangers 
strangers who could be in legitimate yeah. distress. Man, I don't know. <laughs> There's larger implications of this whole true crime thing, which is what in media studies we often refer to as cultivation theory or mean world syndrome. That the more I consume media in which horrible things happen, the more I expect horrible things to happen and therefore become paranoid, really, of mm -hmm. every person I come into contact with who is a potential murderer. Who's everybody. If, uh, you know, who's everybody. Right. <laughs> who becomes literally every... I mean, I don't... It's such a big question because when you were telling that story and, and you said... And she offered them a ride home. I was just like, ooh. <laughs> right. You can tell the mo. I didn't even have to play the, the scary music. Yeah. And it almost, I don't think I'm going to answer your question. Uh, instead to say what I immediately think of when I think of that, is it like, it gives me a way out. It's like, well, I wouldn't do that. So right. I'm not getting murdered. And that's false too. I mean, it is both false that everyone is a potential murderer and it's false that you can make yourself safe. And how can you negotiate those two truths as a person and not become a shut-in? Because I, the more you think about it, the more you think, I'm actually never safe. Right. I'm never safe. I, I'm sitting I, here in my university office recording this podcast. My door is closed, but it's not locked. Mm -hmm. Someone could come in here and shoot me I right now. So. Yeah. I'm in my apartment with a window that could be smashed in. And what, the more you start to rehearse those possibilities in your head, it gives you an anxiety response, at least it does me, that I feel. <laughs> and that can't be good. And yet I continually exacerbate it by listening to nothing but murder all day. I know. I do. I... And I think this is a really big question that, again, is not a new question. George Orwell wrote an essay about people being fascinated with reading about murders in the newspaper. You know, it's, it's not a new human impulse. It's a persistent one, which, you know, I might slightly make the question different, but because we're in a media-saturated world that is giving us what we already want, which is stories about violence that we can look at and that we can watch from that possibly safe space, but then makes us feel like no space is safe. There are a lot of, I don't know, psychological elements at play, I think, in the, the idea of true crime always being pop culture. And, you know, I'm not sure what to do with that. I guess that's why I look for the positive. I look for like, okay, this is going to be a thing. So what can true crime narratives do that might actually be constructive or progressive? And so the narratives that not only try to right a wrong, so Serial Season 1, I think pretty clearly takes the angle that if Adnan Said isn't innocent, he shouldn't have been found guilty on the evidence presented in court. The podcast In the Dark, their second season just did an amazing story about a black man in Mississippi named Curtis Flowers, who has been tried six times for the same murder by the same white prosecutor. And every time the prosecutor has been found of prosecutorial misconduct, but he just keeps trying him again. And wow. yeah, it's, I mean, and they thankfully put this story in the context of Mississippi, which it's impossible to understand it outside of that context. ProPublica just did a really interesting long form story on 
a man in Texas who was convicted of killing his wife largely on blood spatter analysis that now has been discredited. And he's chronically ill in prison in his 80s. And, you know, talking about justice, is it too late to do that? I mean, those kinds of stories, I think, have the possibility to do some real to make a real difference in individual people's lives. I guess Errol Morris is the thin blue line is kind of the gold standard for that. That documentary got an innocent man out of prison. But I think it's also possible for these true crime stories, even if they don't write that kind of obvious institutional wrong, can expose some ways our institutions are broken and are racist and sexist. And that kind of awareness through a story people are going to be interested in anyway can possibly be a good thing, be a, a for real politically good thing. We would love to think so, wouldn't we? Yeah. I mean, that something good can come out of it. I certainly think that was the case with Making a Murderer, mm-hmm. where there were people who, and I know because I sort of got sucked into this as well, okay, maybe this murder happened, mm-hmm. but that Brendan Dassey wasn't a part of it, or at least shouldn't have been prosecuted in that way, or at least he should not have been convicted. Right. And therefore, I am watching this show as a viewer who then is on this crusade to right this wrong. Yes. That may or may not actually be a wrong. That may or may be a construction of the producers or whatever, but the evidence that they presented sure does seem to point to the fact that these unscrupulous prosecutors and police framed a developmentally disabled person mm-hmm. into confessing a murder that clearly they were not a part of and did not understand the line of questioning and did not have their disability taken into account and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it feels wrong. Well, you look at the West Memphis three, right. And the, the paradise lost trilogy, it got a man off of death row period without film, without telling that story, people wouldn't have known and therefore wouldn't have made a stink about it. It's one thing if your small community thinks that something went wrong, but national attention and national pressure does do things. It does. But to speak to your point, we think it's an injustice. It reminds me of the moment in the film, 12 Angry Men, where Henry Fonda is obviously the hero for getting everyone to think differently about the evidence and to think critically and to be empathetic. But there's this one moment where one of the jurors is like, what if you change all of our minds and the kid did murder his father? And that question just hangs over the film because at the end, you can't know. There is no real authoritative truth. As much as books like In Cold Blood and Executioner's Song, I'm not saying those people didn't do it, but to be able to tell the, the absolute most accurate story, it's impossible. You know, it's, it's impossible. And so the true crime narratives that highlight that, that point out the inconsistencies and the contradictions that are inherent in any story, but with the stakes so much higher in, in something like a murder, it's, it's saying something about truth and our ability to access it through story and through language. 
Or at least what we perceive to be the truth. Right. Which may or may not line up with actual occurrences. Exactly. And that's a very powerful thing. Especially when you start to think about it really rests in the realm of belief. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily in the realm of fact. That's the part of it for me as a true crime listener that I find hard to reconcile. It's very difficult. It highlights the limitations of human knowledge in a really concrete way. Because I mentioned that case with the blood spatter analysis. Blood spatter used to be, oh, absolutely, that'll tell us the story of this crime. And now, 25 years down the line, it's like, well, actually, no. And uh, there's this great book called The Red Parts, Autobiography of a Trial by Maggie Nelson, where she attends the trial of the man who is accused of murdering her aunt, who actually died four years before she was born. And I won't give it away, but even DNA evidence is shown to be imperfect and is shown to not tell the complete story. So, you know, all of these quote unquote scientific processes, we put so much faith and belief in sometimes end up not being able to hold that belief and that faith. And so then what we have is stories, but stories can be told in a very manipulative way. And that's, in fact, the job of defense attorneys and prosecutors is to tell a story in a very manipulative way. And now we're all on the jury. And what does that do? Because it's not about what is real or about what happened. It's about what I can convince you happened. Right. And that's all in the presentation. That's all in what details you reveal and which ones you don't, which is in many ways the MO of true crime in and of itself as a genre. Mm -hmm. Very few true crime texts present the facts and then say, figure it out for yourself. That is not, (laughs) (laughs) that's not the nature of true crime as a genre. And all this circles around, I mean, if we're talking about murder, A dead body, a person who cannot speak, who cannot tell a story anymore. And what is our responsibility to that lost person? If I were to ever write a true crime narrative, I think that would be a paralyzing problem for me. How do you give due diligence to the victims when they cannot speak for themselves? I don't know. We haven't even touched on, and we won't clearly won't have time to, but the most disturbing of the true crime genre, which are all the child murders. Yes. Where, where people just are murdering kids. The first season of In the Dark looks at the Jacob Wetterling case, a boy who was abducted on his paper route and later found dead. And John Walsh is America's Most Wanted, obviously came from the death of his son. I mean, those are the ones that, I don't know, even a lot of the podcasts I listen to won't touch. And is that the right decision? You know, I mean, I guess that's the question. You don't want to be exploitative, especially of victims who are so vulnerable. But is there a way that telling these stories can intervene, can help, can make a stronger system to protect the most vulnerable around us. That's what I hope for in true crime. And that's how I justify it to myself, being a quote-unquote fan of quote-unquote <laughs> murder, right? I mean, that's, that's a difficult position to take, one that a lot of the people closest to me do not understand, and I do not speak to them about it. But it is something that I've tried to think about and write about, and at least that's where I've landed now. It's the only way I can justify it 
even if the actual pleasure I get is a different kind than this is politically progressive. It's not just that. It is the horror movie thrill. And trying to negotiate those responses is one of my most complicated fandoms. Let's put it this way. I don't have <laughs> those same sort of questions when, when we're doing Harry Potter. <laughs> and I, I understand. I can be sort of self-reflective about the fact that there's a part of me that's slightly nosy. Yeah. Kind of wants to know what's going on in the house next door. Oh, I'm more than slightly nosy. Yeah. <laughs> kind of always suspecting that maybe it's murder. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and being able to say that, be like, my upstairs neighbor is the Long Island serial killer. There is a real privilege in being able to say that. And for me, that privilege comes from never really being threatened and losing no one in my family to that kind of violence. Exactly. I think it would be a way different ballgame if if those two things weren't true. It's its own version of whistling past the graveyard. Yes. Yes. So at the end of the day... True crime, what? I think at the end of the day that true crime, popular true crime is getting broader and wrestling with the cultural implications of a particular crime's details and how those details have certain sources and certain resonances has the possibility to really help us not touched by the crime, think through certain uncomfortable or dangerous political realities and talk us through how we might process them both as a culture and as individual people. And I think that's a really exciting thing that's happening in the genre that's different than something like In Cold Blood. Hmm. I think that's really interesting. I think at the end of the day, true crime is a way for us to process two very important realities of life. Number one, that it's temporary. Mm -hmm. And number two, that it's tenuous Mm -hmm. and that at any moment, both from the perspective of the murderer and from the perspective of the murdered, it can be over Mm -hmm. that we never really know what's coming. We never really know what's going on in someone else's head and that those two things can come crashing into each other at a very high rate of speed. Yeah. (laughs) It's those are two big, scary realities of being a human being. And so we listen to these stories in order to say at some level, wow, I'm glad that wasn't me. Mm -hmm. Either from the perspective of the murderer or (laughs) from the perspective of the murdered. I'm glad I can look at this situation in someone else that isn't me. Yes. And that all victims deserve to be mourned and that there are some in our world that are mourned unequally. And that calling attention to that is important. So for Dr. Tracy Beeler, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you to you, Tracy. Oh, thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. And we'll be back in two weeks. We'll talk to you then. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, 
iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers, or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.